Hi, I'm Lisa Morton, founder of Roland Ransville PR, and this is our We Built This City podcast. This podcast is made of the conversations of the Mancunians born, bred and adopted that put the heart into modern Manchester. We're a city that literally rebuilt itself after the IRA bomb exploded in Manchester City Centre in 1996. While the city continues to grow brick by brick, we know that what makes it great are the people that come together day in and day out, even if it is via video call right now. One of those people is today's guest, Dr. Carl Austin Bean, OBE DL, former Lord Mayor of Manchester and now LGBTQ plus advisor to the GM Mayor, Andy Burnham. Having the opportunity as Lord Mayor, being able to sort of tell your story and, and having people asking questions about sexuality and about gender, it just opened up so many more avenues for people to have those dialogues. I absolutely loved it. I met Carl for the first time at Sir Howard Burns Dean's retirement dinner at Manchester International Convention Centre. It was basically the biggest leaving do anybody has ever had in the city. Since then, we've seen a lot of each other, some great events, lots of fundraising events in particular across Manchester. And it's just a shame we didn't meet earlier, although we've certainly made up for it since. Hi, Carl. Thanks for coming along today. Hi, Lisa. No, it's a pleasure. Thank you so much. So how does Mr Gay UK become Lord Mayor of Manchester? Uh, yeah, so I was uh, Mr Gay UK in 2001. And I'd actually entered it uh, the year before as well because I was sort of uh, passionate about what Mr Gay UK stood for. Um, and I suppose in a way, dur- during the time that I was sort of leading up to, to winning that competition, I probably treated it a bit like an election campaign, um, the, the way that I actually wanted wanted it to be. So the the way that to, to sort of go forward and then sort of go Sort of bypass many many years and get into to local politics, then become a, a Labour councillor. Um, I just felt that it was something that I could draw on, and the fact that represented the city um, as being the first openly gay Lord Mayor, the same as uh, as representing uh, the gay community as Mr Gay UK back in two thousand and one. And you were born and bred in Crumpsall and you've lived in Manchester your whole life. Um, you set up your cleaning business, VA Clean, in 2000. You've got contracts ranging throughout the city, haven't you, including the iconic Beetham Tower? Yeah, we got Beetham Tower in... Two th- we actually got that on my birthday on February the 5th, 2010. So uh, we, I'd, I'd done quite a little bit of work beforehand because before the cleaning company, I had a promotions company called Oz Promotions. But then in sort of 2008, when the... when it started to go a bit pear-shaped with with society. Uh, we realised that we needed to try and find an, another income stream. Myself and my business partner, Dale, both lived in apartment blocks at the time. And one of the biggest things you saw was the fact that apart from your, your rent and your service charge, you didn't actually see where any of this money went uh, apart from the cleaning. So that was it. That was sort of what, what where the brainchild of setting up a cleaning company for the, the initially specialised in the communal areas of apartment blocks. So that, that sort of set that up in, in 2010. And we've had that now, yeah, just over 10 years. So which is the highest window you've ever cleaned? The highest window will have been actually probably in the Neville's apartment in, uh, in <laughs> Beetham Tower. I've cleaned that myself personally. <laughs> I wanted to know, you actually do it yourself then? <laughs> I, I, do you know what? I, I get involved a lot and, and I think like don't ever expect anyone to do something unless you're doing it yourself um so i think that's one thing that i've always stood by everything i've done should always do it yourself before you'd expect anybody to do anything for you absolutely and do you charge um phil neville more for the fact you're doing his windows <laughs> no he probably gets it a lot cheaper because of the fact that i just want to make sure the job's done to a certain <laughs> standard <laughs> <laughs> you were appointed Lord Mayor in 2016, which is an incredible achievement. And you were very vocal about the fact that you were the first openly gay mayor and also the youngest mayor in the UK at that time. How did it feel to, to get that accolade? And also, why was it so important for you to be very open about the fact that you were gay? Well, I I actually got involved in local politics from around about 2005 when I was living in the city centre and I found myself complaining about things like the state of the canal, uh, bins overflowing, uh, people parking in cycle lanes, you know, the things that sort of annoy you and wind you up on a day-to-day basis. Um, and I was contacting the council regularly with with my little sort of bug binds. And I thought, you know what, If rather than moan about it, do something about it yourself. 
So that was why I got involved with the with the local Labour Party. And then someone sowed a seed to say about the fact of becoming a councillor. So then I was, as, as I progressed, uh, I initially stood uh, in Burnage in 2010. And I'd, it was a, a follow year in 2009. So I'd actually been working on it for, for nearly two years. And unfortunately, when it come to it, I in 2010, I lost out to Bernie's just by 183 votes when it had had a majority of 1,600. Uh, so I carried on the following year and managed to win it with a majority of 1,500. So I'd managed to win back all those people. And while I was on the council, I was very passionate about communities. I was very passionate about the area where I lived. The you know I, I have a massive uh, belief that if you're a councillor or you're an MP, you should live in the ward that you represent because that way you see what people see on a day-to-day -day basis. And while I was on there, you know, I did a lot of work within the neighborhoods. I was doing, I was on the licensing committee and I become lead member for cycling and also lead member for LGBT uh, men. And then what I also realized, we've got this Lord Mayor who is there to be the first citizen and to actually represent the community of, of Manchester. And all I could see for, for many years, apart from the odd one every now and again, was someone who'd been on the council for 30, 35 years, uh, no disrespect to anyone, but a bit like the fat controller out of Thomas the Tank Engine. <laughs> um, and and it was like, you know, it's a bit of like a swan song. And and I just decided that, no, I, I wanted to do this. and that, But then the reason why I wanted to do it was to represent the people that you're there to serve. So I put myself forward. And Paul Murphy, who was a brilliant Lord Mayor, he got 42 votes and I got 41. So I could see there was an appetite. So for that next year, I just spent the year talking to other councillors and explaining that, you know, I really wanted to do this. I wanted to be part of what the communities were about. It's about engagement. It's about representing the, the communities and what Manchester is about. So thankfully, in 2016, um, I became, yeah, I became the, the, the Lord Mayor. And when they actually did the initial press release that the council did, it didn't mention about being openly gay. So I challenged them on this. And the reason why they, the press office said they didn't do that was because in case they'd been, it would open up questions to say, oh, well, if, if you're making a point of him being the first openly gay, has there been a gay Lord Mayor before? And for me, I, thought, I think it was important to get that message across because, because of the, work, the things that I'd done within the LGBT community, because of the, the work that I'd done as Mr. Gay UK, uh, I could just imagine that the first Sunday after I'd been announced as Lord Mayor, the Mail on Sunday would have done a shock horror, Lord Mayor of Manchester, porn shame. They'd, they'd have found something to try and sort of uh, throw something at it. So I just thought right from the offset, just be completely transparent with everything that I, everything, my background, everything that I've done in the past and also going forward. And I think that sort of, um, that was something I was passionate about, making sure that I, I was open about it. And also I think, making sure that um, because I, I knew or I felt that even if there was going to be any sort of backlash or anything, at least I was strong enough to be able to deal with it. And obviously the city embraces diversity. So did you find that that was welcomed or that it was it was supported? Surprisingly, um, it was it was uh, welcomed a lot greater than what I probably thought it would be, especially with various um, faith and religious communities. Um, you know, I remember going to, to many of the, the temples, the synagogues, the, the mosques um, across across Manchester and feeling completely embraced. And I remember going to an iftar and being with the Iman and we broke the fast. And I remember putting just something on Twitter. And I think it was The Guardian then ended up running a story about how multicultural Manchester was, the fact that how much it's embraced uh, the communities that, that we're all from, uh, that you wouldn't get in other parts of the country. And I think that was another thing that was so important, you know, having the opportunity as Lord Mayor to be able to go to these sort of places, going into schools and sort of even in faith schools and being able to sort of tell your story and, and, and having people asking questions about sexuality and about gender, it just opened up so many more avenues for people to have those dialogues. Mm. And did you enjoy your tenure? I absolutely loved it. Um, I remember, I mean, the, the, the events were just so vast 
um, and so different. Normally, a Lord Mayor would do around about 350 engagements. We did 1,126. And one thing that I was very strong about was the fact that uh, respecting each and every one as if it was the same. So I would make sure that they would all get the same um, welcome. They would all get the same sort of the same Carl and Simon that would turn up because it was for one year. And I think the fact that I was, you know, I, I, I was the youngest Lord Mayor that we'd had at the time. And because of that, I think there was so much more energy there. And, and, I, and, I, and I wanted to, I, I went there to prove and to do that, to sort of represent and to, to be able to be there. And, you know, there was, there was charity events that I went to. Initially, I was told you can't do certain events. So rather than not do them, what I did was I had the chains printed onto T-shirts and sweatshirts so that we could do the event. So that we could do the 5k runs, we could do a 10k, we could do the tug of war, we could we could get involved with sports days and and also breaking down that barrier because the chain itself is a barrier. And you know, being able to go to places and if it's if it's a sports day over in Bogot O'Clough, why are you gonna turn up in a in a lounge suit and a and a waistcoat and a shirt and tie? No, everyone else is there in shorts and t-shirt. So that's what we did. We we went as what you would expect people to find. And I think that broke down a lot of barriers for people. This is the We Built the City podcast, celebrating the Mancunians that built and continue to build this amazing city. You handed your rollover as Lord Mayor, didn't you, five days before the arena attack? And I know you felt helpless during the days and weeks after that because you felt that you'd, you'd kind of lost your ability to help. How did that feel for you? This was probably it's one of my most lowest moments in my in my in my life, if I'm honest. Um, so what what happened was, so I I I'd spent that year with we'd built up all the relationships, and then I stood down as Lord Mayor on the Wednesday. Um, I was actually gone to a civic dinner on the on the Monday night, uh, Maria Bolshaw's um, sort of leaving dinner. It was. Uh, so Howard was there. There was quite a few of the uh, civic uh, leads and dignitaries at uh, uh, this meal. And Simon had been trying to get hold of me, and I didn't answer the phone. And we we were walking back to the town hall, and Richard went to get his bike from down down in the in the cellar at the town hall. And while he was getting his bike, I t- I phoned Simon, and Simon said there's been something happening in the city centre. It seems like there's there's been a bomb go off. So. Bit unsure what was going on, speaking to the security who were on on the night in the town hall, and then we sort of managed to see some pictures and footage. So I ended up sort of telling Richard the fact that it seems like there's a bomb that's gone off off in the city, and um, the pair of us were just in the town hall for, for for probably about an hour or so, just just wondering what what was going on, um, because everything became locked down straight away. Anyway. That I was awake all night. I went home. I was awake literally all night that night, watching the news, watching it unfold. My phone was just going all the time by reporters, by different people from from across the world as well. Because I think during my year, I'd made it quite my, my contact details and my phone number were very visible to people. Um, and I was being asked for interviews. I was being asked about how I felt about this. But then I was also advised pretty much within within minutes of that bomb going off that I was reminded that I wasn't Lord Mayor anymore. And I was also reminded that it wasn't my place to speak on behalf of the city. So then the following day in Albert Square, when we had the vigil and all the people were there, I made a point of not doing what all the other councillors did and all stood at the back of the the, the, uh, the main stage on, on uh, in Albert Square. I just went and stood as everybody else did and watched it and it was very emotional and to hear people speaking and and to see uh see what what was what was coming out of there I was I was deeply hurt and it was a bit like it's a bit like a strange bereavement Mm -hmm. um because I'd been doing all this work I'd been sort of building relationships and I was walking, you know, and, and then having people like BBC Radio Manchester and and the local radio stations and the, the local TV sort of shouting me for for a quote and what my thoughts were and how I was how I felt, and I wasn't able to do that. Mm-hmm. Um, so I ended up sort of becoming very isolated for probably about a month, um, even though I would still go to places. 
inside I was isolated um, and felt very um, worthless. Mm. Yeah. So I, I found that I found that quite traumatic in my own sort of little way. That must have been so hard because everybody felt helpless. And there you had been in a position a few days earlier where you could make such a difference. And that must have been so hard to have that taken away from you. You landed the role of, the, of Andy Burnham's first ever LGBTQ plus advisor uh, not long after, didn't you? How did that happen? That's right. Well, um, I'd when I was um, Lord Mayor and Andy was going for his uh, to, to, to become the contender for Labour Party. You know, I've known Andy for, for a number of years, obviously with him doing what he was doing in the Labour Party as an MP when he stood for the leadership. And I'd always got on well with Andy. I always liked him. We've always, you know, we've always got on well. And we had a conversation and I think he was, he was quite shocked at the same time when I was, when I'd been deselected from the Labour Party. And I think he, he saw everything that I was doing as Lord Mayor and he's always been very he's always been very passionate and he's always spoke very highly of the work that I did as Lord Mayor and as a Labour councillor. And I think he just saw there was something there that knowing that across Greater Manchester we've got such a high population of LGBTQ plus people. You know, when we break it down, there's over two hundred and ten thousand people who identify as LGBTQ and that's that's the size of Rochdale. So if we just sort of have someone to look after one one of their boroughs, I think he saw it as someone who would be able to engage, someone who would be able to listen, someone who would be able to make a difference to people across Greater Manchester. And we had conversation. And at the beginning, there, there was a little bit of resilience because of the fact that it would be a conflict of interest if I'd have still been a councillor. But then when I came off the council, obviously there was no conflict of interest. And... And I just think it, 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 you know, he saw something in, and the fact that it's it's reaping the rewards as I do it. You know, I, I thoroughly enjoy what I'm doing. It's it's hard work. You know, when when even just doing it across Manchester when I was LGBT lead on the council, it was hard work. But doing it as a GM level, you, you've got some so many different uh, complexities then as well. But it's so much rewarding knowing that you are making a difference and even going to places like Wigan and going to Rochdale and, and, and covering those sort of areas, they now feel that they're being listened to on a GM level. And it's not just, uh, you know, we always talk about in Greater Manchester, we always talk about everything being London centric. Um, when you're in Bury or Bolton or Rochdale, everything's Manchester centric. Um, so I think it was a great way of breaking down those barriers and, within that first year of, of my role, we managed to make sure that there was a pride event that took place in all 10 boroughs, as well as local prides. You know, I'm not taking any credit for that, but I'm saying I helped and I supported and I was able to give advice and, and to sort of, and be there and to sort of show support, but on a GM level that they've never had before. What kind of impact have you seen? Um, have you any specific examples yeah, I mean, there's, there's been a few, especially when it comes to for, for younger people. Um, and, you know, I'm just going to mention there, there, there was just one time I was went over to one of the youth groups over in Wigan. And I'd just gone over to, to see the group, have a conversation and see what problems they've got or what issues, anything we could do to help. And there was a, a young trans lad there came up quite upset. He'd explained that some of the issues that he'd been having at school I think for that, something like the last three years, he'd been trying to get the school to let him just wear trousers and a shirt rather than a blouse and a pinafore. Uh, but the school were adamant that, no, that's their school policy. And I was listening to what, what he was saying, and then I was listening to a, a few other trans people, both trans male and female, with their own stories and their own issues and their own problems that they're having. And, you know... I know from myself, from going to school, the fact that, you know, when you're studying for GCSEs and you're studying, you know, you're just, just trying to get by on a day-to-day -day basis. If you're, if you're a little bit of, a, of an outcast or you're a little bit different, it's, it's very hard for you. Um, but then to, to not be able to wear what you wanted to wear in school that, that was still uniform, but just against some, someone's idea of what it should be, I thought it was quite ludicrous. So then... I went away from that and I think I, I came home and I, and I literally just sort of put something on social media to sort of explain what had happened. Didn't name anybody, didn't name the the area. 
Um, but I did put on it that I will be asking questions in the morning and I will be wanting answers of why this is so barbaric. Um, within the next morning, I'd already had a phone call from the mainstream News. They wanted to run a story on it. And the I then ended up speaking with the, the borough council that it was to do with. Uh, they then went and had a conversation with the school and with their education system. By lunchtime, the school policy had changed. The uniform policy had changed. And this had taken this, this lad three years to try and get there. The parents had tried to intervene. That wouldn't happen. But just because it was being highlighted, sort of using the, the networks that I've got just by on social media made a massive difference. And, and thankfully, that, that, that will have a massive impact, not just on that one person's life, but people's lives across Greater Manchester. And you're a real supporter of mental health issues and support in Manchester, aren't you? Why is that so important to you? Um, I think it's quite simple in the fact that if we look at the, the rate of suicides, um, you know, one in five of us have thought about suicide at any point. It's the, it's the highest killer of men under the age of 49. Um, it's the leading case of killer for everybody um, between 15 and 29. Um, half of gay men have said that life wasn't worth living and they've tried to take their lives. And if we look at the amount of um, people within the trans community who, who've, who've tried to, to take their lives. And it just takes me back to, um, thankfully, in 1988, I left school. Um, but it takes me back to when Section 28 was brought in. And for those that period between 1988 and 2003... Those people that had to go through school where there was no sex education, we were, not, not even necessarily sex education, but just to ask questions. Because, I mean, you know, mine was non-existent, you know, back, back in the day. I think it was a cucumber and a condom and about that was as far as it got. Um, and, and that was it. But back then you could have asked questions. Whereas during that period, um, you couldn't even ask questions because teachers were scared and, and, and people were scared of what, I won't, I wouldn't even say promoting homosexuality. And I think those people who grew up or went through a certain age of school between 1988 and 2003, they, I understand why they can suffer through a lot of mental health because you were made to feel worthless. You were made to feel that you weren't worth anything because just because of what your gender or your sexuality was. So I think for me, mental health within, not just within the LGBTQ plus community, but for everyone, I think, you know, I, I, I worry where we're at at this moment in time with, with, with where we are in society. And obviously, I know this this is a podcast, but I'm, talking, I'm going to mention about uh, the coronavirus uh, pandemic and COVID-19. I know that this is going to have a massive impact on mental health, on people, um, not just with the mental health of, of people right now, but in years to come, those people who have been told they've got to self-isolate, they've got to stay in, they're, being, you know, they're, be, they're finding a new way of life. And for some of those people who have been struggling to get out, to come out into the, of their shells and to be who they, who they their true, true selves, I think they're easily going to find a way of finding Netflix, finding computer games and becoming very, very isolated. And I think we need to make sure we're looking after those people. We built this city, a podcast about the Mancunians born, bred and adopted that put the heart into modern Manchester. So how does a boy who left school with one GCSE in drama end up with the title Dr. Carl Austin Bayhan OBEDL? Well, obviously it was drama, <laughs> yeah. so so that, that answers the question, really. Um, God only knows. Um, I, I, I love the fact that, and, I, and I'm so grateful to, to Bolton University uh, for giving me an honorary doctorate for my service to the community. You know, yes, I left school at 16 with one GCSE, and I think, you know, I, I, I liked school. I tried my best, but I'm just not academic. Um, you know, I've reset my maths exam five times and each time I've got an E. So I know I'm not going to get any better at it. And I'll, I'll be honest, I'm in, a, I'm in a very good position where I get asked quite often to, to do recommendations for people and also for people to put in for grants within communities and to be able to uh, give, give, give it some gravitas uh, with, with the title that I've got. So 
if there's any grants going out there, I will always use the the doctorate. You know, I, I don't use it for anything. I just, I just use it for that because then it's going to benefit community groups. It's going to benefit because when it comes to that grant process, they're going to see doctorate and think that, yeah, that's fine. They're, they're going to, you know, they're not, they're not going to delve in too deep. But if you can use it to the advantage of others, then that's what I'm, I'm, I'm really happy to do. But yeah, it's been an interesting, in, interesting life going from from one GCSE to, uh, to, to you know go, going through that with the OBE and the, and the, the, the deputy lieutenancy, and the OBE you know is something that's been for work that I've done over the years because that's for community, it's for well for charity, it's for the LGBTQ equality, and it's for the work across communities in Greater Manchester, and that takes about two years, two to three years to get. So even the work that I've done in the past sort of two or three years is all new to what was coming in there, and. I, I look at it, and I look at from even going back with the with the Lord Mayor. You know, we look at how different things can change. And being Mister Gay UK in two thousand and one, I walked up Dean's Gate in a Pride Parade fifteen years ago, um, just wearing a pair of hot pants and a sash. To fifteen years later, as Lord Mayor of Manchester, being the first citizen walking that same route as the Lord Mayor, and I think that just goes to show that you know you can be anything. You can. You know, just believe in yourself and just just keep trying things. And I think it's that thing of always, if someone sows a seed, let it grow and, ju- and just pick up on that. Um, I'll be honest, Lord Mayor was probably, you know, was the highlight for me in the fact that if I hadn't become Lord Mayor, then I wouldn't have met the people who are the likes of Sir Warren Smith, who's the Lord Lieutenant, uh, Rogers the Dean at the Cathedral with... Uh, Ian Hopkins, the chief constable, the chief fire officer, all the exec members uh, within all the councils, exec, you know, to do that. So I I thank the councillors at Manchester City Council um, at that time who did take faith in me and did uh, vote me in to be Lord Mayor, because if it hadn't have been for me being Lord Mayor, uh, I definitely wouldn't have become uh, a deputy lieutenant. And who knows about whether or not I'd have got the OBE or not. You also got a medal for bravery, didn't you, the RAF, for pulling a man out of a burning plane? Yeah, that was in, that was 1992, uh, September 92. And what had happened was that a Hawk aircraft had come off the runway, uh, RAF Chivna. He'd, he'd literally, he'd been showing off basically the pilot and there was two pilots in there. One of them, the, the first one, he managed to pull the ejection seat and he he got out. The second one, as the impact of the aircraft hit the runway, the actual uh, piston that the ejection seat sits on, it had come off there so he couldn't eject. So I managed to get on top of the fuselage while it was still, uh, the flames were, were still going. Uh, I got hit by ammunition. It did a big crack down my visor. I managed to get him out of the, the seat, lifted him up. I just remember his head falling back. All the plastic had sort of melted onto his face. I remember his pearly white teeth. And we got him out, and literally he li- he lived for 11 days, died 11 days of smoke inhalation. Uh, but because of the fact that the, the seat was basically a, a bomb about to go off, I got the, the Humane Society Bronze Award for Bravery. What do you think the RAF taught you? What was your biggest learning? Uh... Right. I, I love the Air Force and, and I suppose right from the day of joining the Air Force, I I always knew there was gonna be a gamble. So so cutting back to, to to a bit with going back to sort of my early days, I I tried to sort of tell my mum from an early age that I thought I was different. Um, didn't really know what it was because the word gay was quite a derogatory word back then and it was only ever used in slang words it was only ever to use to sort of call people so I tried to explain to them that I had feelings for boys uh, I didn't I wasn't into football I was interested in you know the things that didn't interest me I was a bit bit of a loner but then I'd always wanted to go in the fire service and at the time you had to be 21 but then I went and saw my brother over in Aquateria and realized they had a fire service within the RAF. So I thought, oh, quite, quite like the idea of this. So then I then, at the age of 17 and a half, I applied to the RAF and not really knowing or not really accepting the fact of what my sexuality was, even though I had a good idea. And then 
for 18 months, it was a, a process where it was you, you had to keep doing these tests and everything. And it took me 18 months to get in. And I guess by that time, yes, I did think I was gay. Um, but again, it wasn't a word that was people used. And I told my mum, and my mum just kept saying, it's a phase you're going through. So I told my mum, I, I got a letter on the 20th of March to say that I was going in on the 2nd of April uh, that year. So I literally had 12 days to get everything sorted out. So I told my mum, and my mum was like, but you can't. And I'm like, what do you mean? She said, well, you've told me you're gay. I said, well, you've told me it's a phase you're going through. So I'd never, and then the day before, on quite ironically, April the 1st, um, you have to go to the careers information office. And it was on Fountain Street at, at the time. And I was there and they just sort of, you fill all your paperwork in and then just a random com conversation was like, a, oh, and you're not gay, are you? <laughs> oh, we just have to ask that. And that was it, you know, and, and I signed this piece of paper and I've, I've, I've still got the piece of paper. And it does say that you can be discharged, you can be court-martialed uh, if you have homosexual tendencies. So I joined up on, and then from day one of me joining the Air Force, uh, I was living a double, treble, and at times a quadruple life, doing different things. At the age of 20, I ended up meeting a girl because of the fact that you were pushed into these situations. She ended up becoming pregnant. Um, my 21st birthday, I got engaged. About three or four weeks later, she had a miscarriage, so we uh, we called that off. I then got posted to Belize, and then I went to Henlow. And then when I was at Henlow, I could be myself a little bit because I, we had London that wasn't too far away. We had Bedford, so I could still live. I was living as Carl, a straight man, and as Carl, a gay man. I was coming back to Manchester and doing things on Canal Street, and you know, I'm sure you, you I'm sure you can use your own imagination there, um, and. I went over to Ascension Island in 1995. I was there for nine months. Had a brilliant posting, loved it. But then there was a girl out there and absolutely, you know, she was amazing and we had a brilliant time. And I thought, right, if it's going to work with anyone, then it'll work with Anne. And then anyway, I came back and within hours of getting back to Manchester, realizing that this wasn't for me. So um, explain to Anne, that what had gone on, I actually, I, I told Anne the truth. She, she was fine with it. Uh, she was in the air force as well. Uh, I then told my mum. Mum again said, don't tell anyone. I eventually told my dad, uh, cause mum had said that, look, you, your dad will throw you out of the house. Yeah, we know what he's like. And I'm like, well, I don't live at home mum, so it's not really a problem. So then I then told one of my brothers and one of my brothers, he was in the Air Force at the time, well, he still is. Uh, but he said that, look, whatever you do, don't let them know that I know because I could get done for this. So I told a couple of people I was in the Air Force with um, out of respect, and they were fine with it. No problem whatsoever. Anyway, in the January of 1997, I started to see a lad in Manchester. I just then got promoted. I was I got promoted to Corporal. I was going to go to Avcent, which is in between Belgium and Holland. It was a dream posting. And normally for someone who'd been in the Air Force in the fire service, it's normally 12 years to get promoted. I'd only been in six uh, because of all the other bits and pieces. And I also, uh, I, 1996, I got a mention in the Queen's birthday honours list with a Commander-in-Chief's commendation. So then going from there, uh, he then phoned the Air Force uh, thinking that it just meant that I wouldn't get posted overseas or that I'd, you know, that I... I, I, I I don't know what he thought, to be fair. Um, anyway, I, he, he told me, and it was over the Easter weekend, and I remember driving back to RAF Honington. I told my sergeant, uh, I told a few others, they weren't bothered about it, but they were like, okay, let us know how you go on. I then was called to OC Admin's office. I then went in. There was OC Admin was there, so officer commanding. Um, there was also the... RAF police were there and the Padre, who's like a vicar. And they basically sat me down and said, SSC Austin, do you have homosexual tendencies? And I sort of paused for a second. Uh, and before I could even say anything else, I just, I realized my life was going to change forever. Um, I then just burst out into tears, realizing that my whole life within seconds has changed. I've lost my home. I've lost my job that I'd signed up for for 22 years. I lost my career. I lost my friends. I lost everything within seconds. And 
because I was also um, a volunteer for SAFA, which was the Sailors, Soldiers and Airmen's Association, and because of the fact that I got the British Humane Society Broads Award for Bravery, I'd got a Good Show Award, and I'd also been mentioned in the Queen's Birthday Honours list, they spared me prison. I could have gone to jail for six months back in 1997, and the only reason why they did spare me that was because of what I've achieved. Um, so if I'd not, if I'd just been um, doing, going about everything as normal, I would have gone to prison for six months in 1997 just for being gay. Um, but one thing I will quite clearly say is, and and and, and state is, I have nothing at all against the Air Force or against any of the military uh, in that, um, because it was the government at the time and certain governments since then that could have made the changes, and. I did an article in 2001 for Attitude magazine, and I basically said the same then, and I, I sort of praised the work that the armed forces do. And in 2002, 2003, they approached me to see how, you know, they could look at recruiting lesbian and gays into the, the RAF. And through that, we ended up in 2004 was the very first time that the Air Force marched in a pride parade. Uh, contrary to everything that all the networks all put out, they always say it was 2008 and it was in London. It was 2004 and I feel very proud to have been a part of that. And I've got photographic evidence and I've got uh, details and even spoke to someone recently at the Imperial War Museum who verifies that as well. If you're loving We Built This City, please could you take the time to leave a five-star review on your podcast platform? Thank you. Obviously, we talk at Roland Ransfield about purposeful relationships. I know that you know thousands of people and you're clearly somebody who cares very much about others. Which relationships would you say have been the most important for you? Relationship, I suppose one big relationship that's important for me is my relationship with the city, uh, with Manchester itself. Um, you know, from a very early age, I've always been passionate about Manchester. I've always loved it. I used to come in as a child... Uh, we remember when years ago we used to be encouraged to go out and do things and get off your backsides and, and go and play. And I remember sort of just jumping on buses with the with a clipper card um, and just going out and venturing out. And I remember sort of finding places and going under the old tunnels near the cathedral um, and behind Victoria Station and and just 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 sort of sussing it out and working out places. And I think I have a, I think that's what makes me so passionate about Manchester is, is look, taking that time and looking at everything and, and seeing seeing what we've got on offer and, and everything. We, you know, we are so multicultural. We've got so much to offer. And then look at what we managed to pull off with the Commonwealth Games. That just sort of, that just shut everybody up worldwide, didn't it? Because they just blew them out of the water with, with our Commonwealth Games. And I think, yeah, rather than it being a personal relationship, it's a relationship you feel with something. I think that's what makes me so passionate about the different groups, the different communities, what we are about in Manchester. And obviously you're very, very close to your mum, weren't you? She passed away last year, sadly. Um, you could see how close you were. What values did your mum teach you? I suppose it was it was everything we've just spoke about, really, um, in, in the fact that she trusted me, um, even when she probably knew that I was telling a little lie that she'd still sort of believe in me to sort of knowing that it was going to either come back and bite me on the bum or if it was going to sort of benefit in, in, in the long term, you know, we, you know, we, we never really went without. Um, however, we were from uh, a sort of background where we made, we made the best of things. Uh, my dad was on my dad was redundant and unemployed for for a long time number of years my mum had a part-time job and then sort of managed to work full-time at the hospital you know we we got involved we'd, we'd get things from the jumble sales it's about valuing things I suppose I remember um I wasn't bothered whether it was a pair of Adidas trainers or if it was a pair of <laughs> Nicky Nicky new news you know it, it didn't really bother me it didn't I, I as long as I liked it or as long as it looked okay uh, I don't know where that word came from but I, I quite liked I had it a pair of them. Um, yeah. <laughs> um, no it, it was that thing about just I, I'm not materialistic and I think that was one thing that, that she made quite clear that we couldn't afford to be materialistic um, and we had two holidays a year one to land or no every year and we stayed in the same 
self-catering. And she loved it because it was a little place around the corner that would do uh, a meal for like 50 pence. And I was more than happy to go there with 50 pence and just go on my own. Um, and with my two brothers would sort of venture off. And yeah, you know, we, we didn't want for anything, but at the same time, we weren't materialistic and it wasn't about wanting things. It was about the fact that you could uh, make the most of what you've got. A relationship that I know is really important to you is your relationship with your beautiful baby daughter, Willow. So you married Simon, your long-term partner in 2015, and baby Willow was born just over a year ago, which is a wonderful story. Do you want to just tell us about that? Yeah, well, originally um, we were going through the uh, adoption process and it didn't really work out. It, it, we started that process just probably about six months before I became Lord Mayor. And then when I became Lord Mayor, we took time out of it and we were told that we could go back into it once we'd done Lord Mayor. But things at the time within uh, children's services probably weren't the best and there'd been quite a lot of changeover in social workers. So for us, um, it just wasn't seen to be working. Probably about six years earlier, uh, at a friend's wedding, a couple that we know, Lisa and Rhonda, we'd had a, we've known them for years. Uh, I've known Rhonda from my, my days out clubbing back in the sort of late 90s. So we've known each other for a long time. And we just randomly had a conversation about, oh, imagine if we had a child, what would it be like? Uh, and then I think that started to sort of work on me while I was, while we were going through the adoption process. And in the end, I think I just sort of came out with the the question to uh, Lisa and Rhonda. It was New Year's Eve, two thousand seventeen, and we just sort of put the question: Have you have you thought anything more on this this question we had six years ago? And I think within about five minutes, they phoned us back to see if we were being serious because they'd been having a, a similar conversation. Because it is quite a strange concept to have. Um, uh, a two male couple and two female couple who uh, we wanted to call basically dual parent um, because we still like our lifestyle and at the same time we're still very busy what we're doing but at the same time we would like a child and is that selfish to have a child you know people may question that but at the same time you've then got four people who all want this child who all love this child um, and yeah, that, that, that was where that sort of came from. So we spent a, a good number of months meeting up, having conversations, having dinners, talking about how we would want our child to be brought up, what sort of world he or she would be brought into, even to discuss, you know, how long they would spend on a tablet, how long they would spend at each house, how long they would spend um, with, with, with each other. And we'd agreed that initially during the, the, the younger years that the majority of the time should be spent with the mothers. Um, but at the same time, any time we wanted to see Willow, we could do. And that you know, Willow was born uh, April the 2nd um, last year. So she's now just 13 months old. And unfortunately, due to lockdown, we were unable to to do anything or to, to sort of have a birthday. We did a little video for her uh, to sort of to celebrate. And we sent that off. And we're so grateful for technology because obviously we can do a lot of FaceTime. We can do a lot of interaction with her. Uh, we can read her stories and we can pull funny faces and we can sing to her and we, we do that on a very regular basis uh, and I'm grateful because I suppose being from a military background as well is the fact that I do remember when we didn't even have mobile phones when people used to go and serve overseas they may have just got married and had a child anyway and they wouldn't be able to see them for six months or nine months depending where they were posted so I suppose I've got that mentality where I can sort of switch on and off to that but at the same time uh, so grateful for for modern technology, uh, modern technology the and way we are. Her christening was probably one of the most amazing events I've ever been to, um, which was at the cathedral, wasn't it? The, and that was—is it only two christenings a year at Hellfire? Is that right? Yeah, I think they do two christenings a year. And you know, picking up on what I'd said earlier about the fact of uh, building relationships and and the relationships you've got with the city, as as my time as Lord Mayor, I built up a massive relationship with with Manchester Cathedral. I think they do something like about sixty Christmas carol concerts during December. I think I went to probably about <laughs> thirty five of them and tried to make sure I had a different uh, Christmas jumper for every one of them. Um, and you know, we had so many different engagements throughout the year with all faiths. The thing I love about Manchester Cathedral is, yes, it's a Christian church, but 
that means nothing in the scheme of things because it welcomes every denomination from every faith and every culture, every gender, every race, every creed and every colour. Um, it's, it's, it's just an amazing, beautiful building run by um, some amazing volunteers as well as staff, but also Rogers, uh, the dean, he's just amazing with the work that he does bringing communities together, bringing community cohesion uh, in a building that would normally be classified as a place of worship. You know, they do, I think, I think when we went to do a test uh, session, Lisa, I think weren't they setting up to do a gin festival? Yeah. And they had, they Um, had to advertise in porn star martinis in the cathedral. (laughs) And and as soon as Anthony uh, who works there and also Stephen came and approached me on, on request by the Dean Rogers, to ask they would love they would be honored to have willow's christening there you know you never one you're never going to say no to rogers but two you're never going to turn down an opportunity to have a christening at the cathedral and the way he spoke to everyone during that service was so personal so it wasn't just a case of him inviting us to have the christening at the cathedral he actually made a point of taking that service as well with marcia and, and others as well and and he made it so personal you know, it was great to, we basically filled the cathedral as well, which is It was beautiful. absolutely incredible. It's actually my favourite building in the city. And I think it just symbolises Manchester's strength and resilience. I remember going for lots of Christmas carol concerts and then to sign late, uh, Princess Diana's book and light candles then. So it's a such a symbol of the city. And it was obviously amazing for Nina to be able to sing at your christening, which was a day I think she'll never forget. And I love the fact that she, she sang a song that only we knew she was going to she sing. She sang Willow, didn't she? And everyone... It brought the house down. Everyone was crying. You had your We Built the City photograph taken in the village on Canal Street. And uh, I loved going out there in the early 90s. That was that we used to go there every weekend. What's so special about it for you? Oh, I think even before I came out, 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 you know, there was places you'd go to. You see Manto, you know, uh, the the people like Peter Dalton uh, and and Carol uh, that, that had the the sort of the forefront of sort of opening Canal Street up as a, as a gay capital of the country with floor to, to ceiling windows so that people could see in and see out rather than it be that usual sort of knocking on a door with a little hatch to sort of see whether you're welcome a bit like you're trying to see the Wizard of Oz over at Emerald <laughs> City you know that, that's what it's yeah. like with doors that you'd knock on and have to have little people obviously I had to throw a, a Wizard of Oz somewhere in between this didn't I um, and and I was a bit like a kid in a sweet shop. And I think when you looked at the different bars on Canal Street, when you looked at the the, the drag bars, when you looked at the fun pubs, when you looked at everything that, that Canal Street had to offer in the mid-90s, mid, mid, mid 90s, early 90s, um, it's it became like a home. It, it, it really did become um, home from home. And even when I've not been in, in Manchester itself... You know, I lived over in Staley Bridge for, for about 18 months, but I was finding myself every night getting a taxi to come into Canal Street to then get a taxi back. It was it was cheaper to just move back into Manchester. Uh, and I think that's another thing why so many uh, students come to Manchester because of Canal Street. And I think we've got to say a massive, a massive thank you to Russell T. Davis, who wrote Queer as Folk, because I think he did something extremely edgy, and you know the work that he did with Red Productions to actually show off what we actually did get up to, and, and people sort of try and say so far fetched, so exaggerated. Well, if you lived in that era at that time and you were part of that clubbing scene at that time, unfortunately, it wasn't far fetched. It was the way that that people did lead their lives, and it was, you know, I, I was a part of that, and it was fun, it was exciting, and and I think. You know, that that gave me the grasp, again, for sort of understanding what Mr. Gay UK was, because Queer as Folk came on our scenes in 1999, actually. Yeah, February 99. And, you know, to see it then and then sort of with, with the whole sort of the way that the village came together. So, so, yeah, I've got a lot to be grateful for the village. The people I met, you know, meeting Nigel Martin-Smith, meeting Peter Dalton, meeting John Barry, you know, people who I can quite easily call and class friends uh, who have believed in me and also given me opportunities that I wouldn't have had before. If you want to know how to build a community that dances on tables, you can find out right here on the We Built The City podcast. 
I can't let you go without um, asking you a few quick fire questions about Manchester. I'm not going to ask this to your United because you said you can't stand football. Out, out of the two, I'm more of a City fan. That's just because of my brothers. Uh, and I also, I prefer Moonchester and Moonbeam than I do uh, Fred the Red. <laughs> I might have to cut that out. I'm sorry. What do you order at the chippy? Oh, I'm I'm really funny about it because I don't like it on a tray. So I like to have everything <laughs> separate. So I like to have pudding separate from my chips and the pe- obviously the peas and the gra- uh, gravy separate. Because one, you get more of it. And two, it just means that you, you can have it on your plate. So do you work through way. it like one thing at a time, one item at a time? <laughs> I have it sort of, I have it like it's, it's quarters oh on a plate. Yeah, it's a bit, bit bizarre, but that's how I like <laughs> That's something it. I didn't know about you. <laughs> Watch you when we go out for dinner again, see how you do that. What's the be- your best pub or club in Manchester? Um, well, back, if I can go back a little bit, I'd have said it would have been definitely Paradise, Essential and Manto as those sort of things. Then Hollywood Show Bar. Uh, as bars now has to be New York, New York, but locally uh, in Burnage, Didsbury, it has to be Reasons to be Cheerful, which is a very, very small right. local bar. Favourite Manchester expression? Uh, Expression-wise, I just love the word mithered. As, as a word, mithered. I use it all the time and people look at me like, so what the hell are that. you saying? No one gets that, do they, if you're not an older? No. Um, no. And what do you miss most about Manchester when you're not here? I suppose when you're going anywhere, you, you miss the people. You know, that, that is that is the truth. You know, you go anywhere else, you go down south and you, you, you notice straight away that if you bump into someone else from, from sort of Manchester or the north, you, you know you're going to get on with them. Thank you so much. And I've just realised that you should have been at Buckingham Palace last week, shouldn't you, picking up your OBE? Yeah, I missed it. But I'm sure that that opportunity will will come again. And it's just a case of having to, you know, I've been awarded it, so I've still got it. I've just not got the medal. <laughs> in these crazy times we're living in, I'm sure I can make Get a T-shirt printed with it on. <laughs> exactly. Yes, I will. Carl, thanks so much. It's been, as always, brilliant to talk to you. And I look forward to seeing you, Simon and Willow, when lockdown's over. Thank you very much. It's been a pleasure. Take care. Carl Austin Bean helped build this city by a love and commitment for people from all walks of life across Greater Manchester, by always making the best of what he was presented with, and by having a different Christmas jumper for 35 carol services at Manchester Cathedral when he was Lord Mayor. Next, I'm going from one mayor to another. It's Andy Burnham. I'm trying to build a network of people who are all wanting the same thing. And yeah, I can feel it growing all of the time and it's wonderful to be part of it. You'll find us here next Thursday. See you then. This is a podcast from Roland Dransville PR. Our mission is to build purposeful relationships in all we do. If you do want to talk to us, give us a call on the same number we've had for 23 years, 0161 236 1122.